It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. Last Sunday, we re-engaged our teaching series in the book of James called Born Again Behavior, and we began to examine chapter 2. We finally crossed over into chapter 2, and we learned that chapter 2 deals primarily with the sin of partiality, and we learned that the chapter is basically divided into three sections. And last Sunday, we focused on section 1, where James actually identifies their sin, and then he issues um, a couple of reminders to them. And this morning, we're going to focus on section 2, where James exhorts them to fulfill what is known or called the royal law, which basically, he says, has to do with loving thy neighbor as thyself. And he not only reminds them of that or exhorts them to fulfill the royal law in terms of that, he also warns them about breaking God's laws, and he warns them about judgment. And then lastly, toward the end of the section, he basically calls them to repentance and right behavior. Please take your Bibles and turn over to James chapter 2. Our section for this morning will be verses 8 through 13. And I'll go ahead and pray once more before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves once more and have now entered into this time of worship through the study and proclamation of your word Lord, we pray that you open our hearts and our minds, our ears to the truth. Teach us again about the sin of partiality. Teach us about your law and, and what, it, what it stands for with us and, and our response to it. Please teach us about that this morning. And teach us about your mercy and how we are to be merciful um, that is a, a, a big point in this text, and so we just pray that you help us understand these things, comprehend these things, and not just hear and understand, but to practice and to live them out. That, that is what you're after here. You want us to be uh, not mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word, and so make your people doers of the word this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if there be anyone here who has yet to come to know Christ in a saving way, we pray that you work that miracle of sovereign grace in their hearts so that they will believe and become part of your true church and family. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Let's go ahead and pick up where we left off last Sunday. We're going to begin with verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Here's what James says next. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, he says. And then he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James begins this next section by pointing his audience to what he calls the royal law. How many of you are like me and, and want to know what the royal law is? How many of you have even heard this phrase? Are we talking about the Ten Commandments here? What are we talking about here? What exactly is the royal law? Well, let's break down the phrase in the original language so we can get a good idea of what it is. 
The Greek word for royal is basilikos. It almost sounds like basilica. My basilica may actually come from that. I'm not sure how, but it's basilikos, and it carries with it the idea of supreme sovereign authority. When we think of the word royal, what do we attach that to? Kingship, right? We attach it to kingship. We think of royalty. And, and it does, in the Greek, carry with it that sort of meaning. Think supreme sovereign authority. And when an ancient king gave an edict, a rule or a law or something to that effect, it would carry with it supreme sovereign authority, and it was binding upon all of his subjects, okay? Now, the Greek word for law is a more simpler word, and it's nomos, nomos. And in this context, it reflects all of God's commands in Scripture, not just the Ten Commandments, um, not just the two greatest commandments that Jesus pointed to. It literally refers, nomos in this context refers to all of God's commands in Scripture, God's entire law. It is, as, uh, as James said here, it is God's commands according to the Scripture. So we're talking about an all-encompassing sort of set of laws here. This is God's entire law. Now, sometimes in Scripture, nomos is used to actually refer to Scripture, not a particular section or type of writing or writing genre. It literally is used in reference to all of Scripture. Uh, like in John 15, 25, where Jesus described how the hatred of the religious leaders toward him fulfilled a messianic prophecy in their law, he says. And, he, and, and this is what it says in their law or in the law. They hated me without cause. Now, this particular messianic prophecy is not located in the traditional law sections of Scripture. Believe it or not, there actually are sections in the Scripture where it is entirely about God's law. You're not going to find this particular law in these sections like Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. Those are the classic traditional law sections. You won't find this one there. And I'm going to tell you where we find it as soon as the sticky page flips. We find it in one of the most uh, just places that you wouldn't think that you would find one of God's laws, and it is in Psalm 69, verse 4. Now, according to Jesus, this psalm is law. And guess what? Every psalm is nomos, is law. And Scripture itself is nomos and law. So the word law in Matthew 15, 25 is basically synonymous with the word scripture. When Jesus speaks of the law there, he is speaking of scripture. And James is doing something similar in the text here. He is talking about all of God's laws, but in a way he is also talking about all of scripture. Or at least all of God's commands in scripture, cover to cover. James is, is referring to, using nomos to refer to even Scripture as a whole. James is telling this congregation, and he is telling us, right? He is telling us that, that God has issued a supreme, sovereign, binding edict to his subjects. What is this edict? 
It is the royal law, which represents all of God's commands according to Scripture. So that's what the royal law is. Now, if you're like me, you're curious and you want to know who God's subjects are. And typically, as Christians, we think that God's subjects are us, Christians. Is that what's intended here? No. God's subjects are all whom he has created, all people for all time. Everyone who's ever lived, lives now, and will live are God's subjects. Every person, every man, woman, and child that he has created throughout all of time, they are his subjects. So that means that God's law, the royal law, all of his law, all of his commands, they are binding upon humanity as a whole. As a whole. In other words, God's royal law, it applies to every person. And there are no exceptions. No exceptions whatsoever. And, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, what about those who never have an opportunity to hear the law? What about those who never have an opportunity to hear the commandments of God? What about those who have, don't even know that there are ten commandments at least? What about them? Does it apply to those who never have an opportunity to hear it, to see it, to read it? Maybe like the pygmy on a deserted island. I don't even know what a pygmy is. It just sounds weird. Is that like one of those, no, that's a shrunken head person. That's different than a pygmy. But what about the person on a deserted island who never, ever, ever has an opportunity to hear the word of God? Does it still apply to that person? Yes, it does. Well, how can it when they haven't heard it? Well, God has written his law on the hearts of men, and so men are what? Without excuse. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Believe it or not, men actually know right from wrong, and their consciences guide them in this. That is by God's design, and that is uh, inside of every single person. Now, it is possible to harden or sear your conscience to the point where you can't really discern the difference between right and wrong. That's something that sinners do. But for the most part, God has created every man, woman, and child with a conscience, with his law, his basic laws written on all their hearts. So even those who do not hear God's commandments have a sense of right and wrong and will be held accountable to that. They will be held accountable to their conscience and to obeying their conscience just as they would to God's commands. This is what the Bible teaches. Maybe you're thinking that doesn't sound all that fair. Well, it's the way that it is. That way, every man who's ever lived is without an excuse, without an excuse. Since God's law applies to all, the whole world is accountable to God. Every man, woman, and child for all time are accountable to God. Romans 3.19 And since all people break God's laws, all people are in a perilous situation and every person needs the only remedy. And what or who is the only remedy? Jesus Christ is the only remedy. They need the person and work of Jesus Christ. When James wrote royal law, he undoubtedly had all of God's commands in mind. But he was also thinking of one command in particular. And we find it in Leviticus 
chapter 19, verse 18, and it just simply says, and this is, uh, uh, James literally quotes it verbatim, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus actually identified this commandment as the second greatest commandment. He identified the first greatest commandment as loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. Matthew 22, 37 through 39. James is, is not only, right here in this context, in this text, he's not only pointing to Leviticus 19, 18, he is borrowing from the Lord Jesus' teachings. I believe James was there and heard the Lord unpack the two greatest commandments. He was not a believer at the time, but he still heard his stepbrother unpack these teachings. Now, why would or did Jesus, or why does Jesus consider these two commandments, basically loving God and loving people, why does he consider these two commandments the greatest commandments? There's a lot of commandments. There's a lot of law in Scripture. Why would Jesus say these two are the greatest? They are the best. They are the highest. Because together, they sum up the entire law. They are a summary. These two commandments are a summary of the entire royal law. God's law, God's royal law from one end of the Bible to the other is essentially about two things. All of God's law, if you boil it down, it has to do with two things. Loving God and loving others. Loving God and loving others. And not just loving God and loving others, but loving both of them rightly. Today, everyone thinks of love in a different way. And most of the time, so sadly, the sexual love is associated with love when people are talking about it. So it's not just a matter of loving God and loving others. It's a matter of loving both of them rightly. This really is a fundamental truth in the Bible. What I'm talking about here is the truth that, that you can literally take all of God's commands, the entire royal law, and, and you can just boil it down to loving God and loving others. You really can. And that's what Jesus meant. I want you to consider how this truth this fundamental biblical truth is revealed in the Decalogue. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17, what is the Decalogue? Deca means ten. What are we talking about now? The ten what? The ten commandments. The Decalogue is the ten commandments. We read about them in chapter 20, verses 3 through 17 of Exodus. Have you ever analyzed the structure of the Decalogue? How many of you have actually just taken the Ten Commandments and read through them and analyzed what they're actually saying and the way that the law is structured there. How many of you have actually done that? It's, it's really fascinating what you discover. You basically have two tables in the Decalogue. You have table one and table two. The first table is represented by the first four commandments. And guess what they deal with? Loving God rightly. The first four commandments are entirely about how to love God, not just love Him, but to love Him rightly. Listen, have the first one, have no other gods before me. Loving God rightly has to do with, with not loving idols or other gods or false gods, especially the false idol and God of ourselves. 
To love God rightly means to place no other God beside him or above him or even under him. It is to love him and him alone. The second commandment, make no carved images or idols. This is very similar to the first one. To love God rightly means to entertain, uh, to not to entertain or to have any sort of idols. And this was big in, in the day that this was actually written because they had literal false gods that were little carved images and pictures and a golden calf and these sorts of things. Today, the idols look differently. They're not so much as carved or anything, but maybe it's a vehicle. Maybe it's a person, whatever it is. The idea here is to love God rightly means to love nobody else but him in terms of him being our God. Don't don't worship or love anything else but the one true living God. The third commandment, do not take God's name in vain. How, How can you love God rightly if you're constantly taking his name in vain or maligning his character by misrepresenting him? Loving God rightly means not taking, and we've reduced that down to just not saying certain profane words, you know, taking the name of Jesus in vain or saying the, the other one that people are, say so frequently. Have you ever seen an era, have you ever lived in an era or time where people take God's name in vain more than today? I never have. It's in every movie, it's on every TV show, it's everywhere you go. You always hear people doing that, but it's not just that. It is that, but it's also falsely representing him or attributing things to him that are not to be attributed to him like evil and these sorts of things. To love God rightly means to represent him rightly, not to take his name in vain, not to malign his character by living in a way that contradicts him. And then the fourth commandment is about what? Remembering the Sabbath, right? Remembering the Sabbath, which is a day that is designated entirely for the believer and God to to be together and to celebrate God and to worship God and and to focus on resting in God and all of that. That's why the Sabbath was established. And back in these days, if you worked on the Sabbath, you weren't loving God rightly. You were loving yourself more than God because you wanted to earn that extra money. You wanted to do this. And I think there's a parallel here with the fourth commandment with today with the church. People find every reason in the world not to be at church on the Sabbath. Always, I'm going to take those extra hours at work. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do... How are we loving God rightly if by not, uh, when we're not assembling with God's people on the Sabbath, when we're not taking a break from our labors and, and resting in God and worshiping God? And, and really, the Sabbath is about focusing on God, not the cares of the world. So to love God rightly has to do with those four things. Now, I think it's way broader than that. But that's a starting point. That's the first table. It's all about loving God rightly. The second table and remaining six commandments deal with what? Loving others rightly. Think about the commandments now. Commandment five, honor your father and mother. Honoring your parents Sixth, you shall not murder. Murder here is not self-defense killing, which I pray never happens to me or anyone else. Murder here is, is extinguishing somebody's life for selfish reasons or for criminal reasons or, or something like that. It doesn't have anything to do with self-defense. It doesn't have anything to do with any of that. But how is murdering people loving people? And I don't think murder's ever been higher in our nation than today. Number seven, 
you shall not commit adultery. That, that law is written into there so that married couples will stick to each other. To stick to your spouse is to love your spouse. And God rightly, to go outside of the marriage is not to love people rightly, even though you might think that you're loving somebody rightly by doing that. You're not. Eight, you shall not steal. How, how is stealing from your neighbors or people loving them? You shall not, number nine, you shall not bear false witness. What is bearing false witness? It has to do with lying. Lying to one another is not loving one another, not loving others. And lastly, number 10, right, you shall not covet. Covetousness has to do with lusting after what people own and wanting what people own. And in the context that this verse, uh, that this commandment is given, it has to do with not wanting your neighbor's house, spouse, cattle, what have you. In our context, vehicle, possessions, whatever. So, the first table of the law has to do entirely with loving God rightly. The second table has to do with loving others rightly. And did you notice how the first table only has four commands, but the second table has six? Isn't that interesting? That God seems to be more concerned, at least through this depiction, of how we treat one another? Very interesting to me. And I don't think that's actually God's heart. I think he wants us to worship him primarily first and all that. But think about it. There are more commandments that deal with loving others than loving him. That's very intriguing and interesting to me. And here's the deal. When we love God and others rightly, we are, in a sense, fulfilling the entire royal law. All of God's law, at least at its core, right? When we love God and others rightly, we are fulfilling the entire law of God. And this is very likely why the Apostle Paul literally wrote that love is the fulfilling of the law. When we love, we are fulfilling the law. That's Romans 13, 10. It's in your reference sheet. Now let's take a a closer look at the second greatest commandment that James quoted here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, if you're like me, you're asking questions in your mind. Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Is it literally the guy that lives, uh, let's see, I'm right here, that lives to the, to the left of me? Is it the gal who lives to the right? Is it Reuben who lives across the street and the other guy who Moses lawn at the most strange times? Who is our neighbor. Who is it? Our neighbor is he or she. It is literally anyone whose need we can meet. Anyone whose need we can meet, which doesn't necessarily mean the person who lives right next door to you or down the street from you. Your neighbor can be a guy that you walk past at the grocery store. Your neighbor can be anyone who has a need that you are able to meet. That's your neighbor. And I want you to think of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan who selflessly and generously met the need of a man he unexpectedly came upon on the road to Jericho. What? That man had been robbed and beaten, right? Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. That's where the parable of the Good Samaritan is. And what did the Good Samaritan do? Everyone else walked around this guy who was a bloody mess. 
And the Good Samaritan stopped and, and got him up and put him on his donkey and treated his wounds and then took him to an inn or a hotel or a motel or something uh, to that effect. He had business to do, so he paid those who were running that establishment to care for this man until he was well. I mean, that is, that is incredible. That's what the Good Samaritan did. But what was he doing? He was loving his neighbor. He was loving his neighbor. How do we, another question, because remember the commandment says you shall love your neighbor, what? Just not love your neighbor, but as yourself. So, so how do we love ourselves? Think about that for a moment. I, I think it's hilarious that in this day and age, and I hear this false teaching in the church all the time, you'll hear things like, well, you have to first learn to love yourself before you can adequately love others. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. We are a people who are so saturated with self-love, it's not even funny. And you say to yourself, well, I really don't love myself. Do you groom yourself? Do you feed yourself? Do you put, keep shelter over your head? Do you maintain transportation? Do you pamper yourself? Do you clothe yourself? Do you trim your nails? Some of you need to. I don't know. Oh, oh, oh that, that, but that's just caring for ourselves. That doesn't have to do with loving ourselves. That has to do with loving ourselves. We love ourselves enough to meet our own needs. Okay? So that is how we love ourselves, right? We love ourselves by meeting our own needs. Loving our neighbors as ourselves has to do with lovingly meeting their needs just as we lovingly meet our own needs. We're all without excuse. Well, I need to learn to love myself before I can start loving others. You combed your hair, you love yourself. Shut up. Seriously, this is, this is just some weird psychobabble. I got I to gotta figure out how to love myself. Now you, the problem with people today is that they love themselves too much to the point of self-worship. Anyone tells you that, say, no, you love yourself. I can tell by the way. You're not here naked, which would be really awkward. You loved yourself enough to put clothes on, and those look like pretty decent clothes. You know what? It, it doesn't have to do with only loving our neighbor. It doesn't have to do only with loving them as we love ourselves. It is broader than that. It is, it is more than that. It also has to do with treating our neighbors how we want to be treated. We hate it when people dishonor us. We totally despise it when people threaten to harm or kill us. We hate it when people cheat on us. We hate it when people steal from us. We, we despise it when people lie to us. We, we don't like it at all. We don't care for it at all when people covet our homes, our, our spouses, and our possessions. We desire, we want to be treated with love. We want to be treated with dignity. We want to be treated with respect. Amen. We want people to adhere to God's commandments, to God's royal law when dealing with us. Why? Because doing so ensures that we will be loved rightly and treated properly. That's what we want. That's what we demand. And yet, that's not something that we do so often for others. We tend to treat others pretty poorly. 
You know, the people whom James wrote to, they were not, very clearly from the text, they were not fulfilling the royal law. They were not loving their neighbors as themselves. They were showing partiality, favoritism, right? By treating the wealthy better than the poor. That's verses 1 through 7. James, what he's doing here is he's attempting to reason with them by using simple logic. He says, if you fulfill the royal law by loving your neighbors, and who are the neighbors here? They're the poor that are being mistreated. If you fulfill the royal law by loving your neighbors, the poor, as yourselves, this is what he's saying, you're going to be doing really well. You're squared up with God's word and will, and that's where you want to be. That's what he's saying. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and the law will convict you as transgressors. Well, that's a fancy word. What is a transgressor? A transgressor is simply one who breaks God's laws. We like to use the word sinner for that. Sinner and transgressor are synonymous. So now it's time to move to verses 10 and 11. James continues by saying, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Oh, man. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James tells them that, that those who keep the law but fail at one point of the law, they are guilty of breaking the entire law. Isn't that amazing how God has structured that? Has set that up, that one breach means that you have broken all of his commandments in a sense. And that we receive the justice and condemnation for doing so. I think God's law is like a pyramid of stone blocks. You know, you, 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 you break one at the bottom of the pyramid, and then what happens? All of the other stone blocks begin to tumble down upon you. And the next thing you know, you're in a heap of rubble. God's law is like a pyramid of stone blocks. When you break one, they all come tumbling down upon you. Breaking one is enough. Breaking one, the person who breaks one is guilty of breaking them all. That is God's economy. That's the way he set it up. It only takes the breaking of one of God's laws to become a transgressor whom God considers guilty of breaking every one of his laws, the entire royal law. And then James points to two of the most serious social sins which are recorded in Exodus chapter 20 verses 13 to 14 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 17 to 18. What are they? Adultery and murder. If a person committed either of those two, they would literally receive the death penalty under the law and be killed and executed. If you went outside of your marriage, dead. 
If you murdered somebody, it wasn't a self-defense situation or anything like that. You murdered somebody for illicit gain or to cover up some kind of a crime that you committed or for whatever, whatever your M.O. was, death. You would receive death for adultery or murder. And, and, and there's no way out of it. You go and you have witnesses that witness against you. You're killed. And guess what? They don't put you on death row for 20, 30 years. They killed you pretty fast. Why did James point to those two breaches of God's law? Why did he point to those two sins in those two passages, right? We're, we're talking about partiality here, and now he's bringing up two capital offenses, adultery and murder. I think he did it to illustrate the extreme sinfulness of, imparti- or of, of partiality. He is likening partiality favoritism to adultery and murder. That's a terrifying thought. He, is, he uses those two examples to literally illustrate the extreme sinfulness of partiality to his audience and to us. Now, these people that he wrote to may not have been adulterers or murderers. I don't believe they were, but they were still transgressors because they broke the second greatest commandment by failing to love their neighbors as themselves. How? By showing partiality. James ties their partiality to adultery and murder to communicate the seriousness of their sin and to illustrate how utterly incompatible it is with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The sin of adultery is totally and absolutely incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ. The sin of murder, totally incompatible. The sin of partiality, right? Favoring one group or person over another, totally incompatible with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said last week, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and partiality They are like oil and water. They do not mix. They cannot come together. One repels the other. Partiality is is a a deadly sin that must be taken seriously. As I said last week, it strips people of the inherent dignity they have as image bearers. It is damaging and divisive in the church and It angers the Lord and maker of all, rich and poor. Proverbs 20.22, I believe, or 22.2. Let's move to verse 12 now. This is what James says next. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Wow, what a statement. The phrase speak and so act is nothing short of a call to full repentance. He is literally telling them to change the way they speak, change the way they act toward others, especially the poor, because that's the group that they're dealing with here. The phrase as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty is a reminder What is the law of liberty? The law of liberty refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law of liberty is the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? It is the message of salvation in what? Jesus Christ alone. That Jesus Christ lived for our righteousness. He, he obeyed God's royal law, the entire law, perfectly, knowing that we couldn't. And he did that for us to earn the righteousness that we need to enter heaven. The gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ lived for our righteousness, that he died to pay for our transgressions, our sins, our breaches of God's law. He died on the cross to free us from sin and to free us from God's judgment and wrath. He was what? Buried in a tomb. And he rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. For all who repent and believe. You see, under the law of liberty, under the gospel, believers are not judged according to the law or according to their transgressions. Why? Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Instead, those who are under the law of liberty, those who are under the gospel, they are judged by grace, which means what? They really aren't judged at all. There is no judgment for those who are under grace. Under the law of liberty, under the gospel, believers have received what? Divine mercy rather than divine judgment. James is calling for this congregation to repent of their partiality and speak and act as those who are under divine grace, those who are under divine mercy. How will a person who is under divine grace, under divine mercy, how will they speak and act? They will speak and act graciously and mercifully toward others. They will show no partiality toward the poor or toward anyone else. And in the next line, James issues a final warning on the matter. Let's move to our last verse, verse 13. He says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And then he says this, Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's our last verse. James was obviously borrowing from a parable Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18. It is known as the parable of the unforgiving servant, and we find it in what? Verses 23 through 35. I'll just paraphrase it for you. According to this parable, a king decided to settle accounts with his servants. One particular servant owed him about 10,000 talents of silver, which in today's market value would be $20 million an obscene amount of money, impossible for just a servant to pay back. I don't even know how he got into debt, into this kind of debt. Maybe he had a Capital One card with delayed interest and just kept racking it up. <laughs> I don't know. But by today's currency value, he owed this king about 20 mil. 
And the servant, guess what? He was unable to pay. So the king ordered that he and his wife and his children and all of his possessions, his home and every literal thing that he owned, his donkey, his cat, don't know if he had one, everything, he ordered that all of it be sold to cover the debt. And I'm sure that once all of that would have been sold, he still would have owed him $19 million. And what happened? The servant realized, oh my goodness, me and everyone were about to get sold into slavery and and this is bad. And what does he do? He falls on his knees and he begins to beg and plead. He says to the king, please, king, have patience with me. I will pay everything back. And guess what? The king had pity on him and decided to show him uh, just to show him total mercy and completely forgive his debt, and then he literally releases him from company. The king, just with the stroke of a pen, wipes out $20 million in debt and says, go free. But when that servant went out from the king's palace, he went and found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii, about two grand in today's market value, and he goes and he finds this guy who owes him two grand and he takes him by the throat and he says, pay up or else. The fellow servant was unable to pay and he began to plead with his servant, the guy he owed the money to. He began to plead with him. He began to beg. And what did he say to him? Have patience with me and I will pay you. I will pay you. And what did the man do? What did the servant do? He took his fellow servant who owed him the money and he throw, threw him. He had him thrown into prison until he should pay the debt. Two grand. Other servants were watching and they became very, very distressed. They knew what happened with the servant before the king and they saw how he treated a fellow servant and it blew him out. They were very upset and distressed. And what did they do? They went to the palace, they returned to the palace and they told the king what they had witnessed. And the king immediately summoned the servant and when he arrived at the palace and entered into the king's court, the king said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. All his debt. Jesus' parable reveals the spiritual psychology of the soul. An unmerciful spirit reveals a heart that has not yet received mercy. But the heart that has been the object of divine mercy, will be merciful. This is why the fifth beatitude says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Matthew 5, 7. If we are not merciful toward us, if we have received the divine mercy of God and been forgiven of our sin, if we are not merciful Toward others, we have much to fear. For this beatitude becomes a curse parallel to James's words. 
In other words, the unmerciful will not receive mercy from God. What a terrifying thought. What a terrifying thought. You know, in the parable, God is the king who has forgiven a sinner of all of his sin. And that sinner walks away, and then that sinner begins to treat another sinner unmercifully. That is thoroughly unacceptable to God. What did he call that servant? You, and there's an exclamation point, by the way, you wicked servant. Imagine what must go through God's mind when one of us refuses to be, who's received his mercy, refuses to be merciful toward others. We know what goes through his mind. You wicked servant. It is a terrifying thought. It is a terrifying thought. And it's a real issue. Even in this church, we've had people, and I won't name names, but we've had people that withheld mercy. And they aren't with us anymore. That is a a terrible sin. And after issuing this warning, James closes the section with another reminder Notice the little phrase at the end of verse 13. It's like he talks about this thing that's so difficult, right? If you withhold mercy, you're not going to get it from God. What a, what a terrible, terrifying thought, but it's totally true. And then he, he puts this little, this little statement on the end. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Every believer, every Christian is a living example of how God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. Do you understand what I just told you? If you are saved, you are a living example of how God's mercy triumphed over his judgment. Why? Because we have broken God's laws. We deserve justice and judgment. And yet, what did he do? He gave us mercy. We have broken the royal law 50 times on Sunday, 22 times on Wednesday. We deserve judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, has given us mercy in Christ Jesus. Our salvation, our transformation, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit all testify to the fact that God's mercy can and does triumph over his judgment. Closing. And you're thinking, great, we're moving on. The closing section is almost as long as the sermon. (laughs) So don't think we're out of here to get pizza and watch the game. You will be. There are, I think, many truths that we can draw from this text. Many. I've got a handful. First, Believers are obligated to fulfill the royal law. There are folks out there who will tell you that the royal law or the Ten Commandments, just the law of God, all of that together, they will tell you that it does not apply to believers. They will tell you that believers don't have to pay attention to the law. It doesn't apply. It's not applicable. We just don't even have to be concerned about it. 
They're out there. They're everywhere. And it's a, it's a big movement today. And we call this mindset, we call this belief antinomianism. Antinomianism is a heresy. The word antinomian is a combination of two Greek words, anti, which means against, and what? Nomos. We learned about that one earlier, which means law. An antinomian is one who is against God's law. I'm not talking about pagans here. They're against it. I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about those who profess Christ, who somehow think that the law doesn't apply to us. This is a Christian heresy. It exists within the church especially within the Reformed movement, who puts a huge, massive emphasis on grace. If the antinomians are correct, and we have them even today, if they are correct and the royal law or God's law does not apply to believers, why would James point to it and say that his audience would do well if they obeyed it in verse 8? Why would James identify their violation of the royal law and call them transgressors of the law in verse 9? Now the fact is, believers are obligated to fulfill the royal law just as unbelievers are obligated to fulfill it. Remember, the law applies to everyone. Everyone is under it. Everyone is bound to it. It is binding upon every man, woman, and child. Even believers Now, the difference between us and unbelievers who are also bound by it is threefold. A, believers are actually empowered by God's grace and Holy Spirit to fulfill the royal law. Titus 2, 11 and 12 and Romans chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Believers are empowered by God's Spirit, empowered by God's grace to obey God's law. We have been saved from the penalty of the law law, to obey the law in a way that we never could before. Unbelievers, however, have zero empowerment to obey God's law. They may try, but their natural desire is to walk according to the flesh, not according to the royal law, not according to righteousness. B, Believers fulfill the royal law because they love God and aim to please Him. John 14, 15, 1 John 2, 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. We aim to fulfill, to obey the royal law, all of God's commands, because we love God and we want to please God. And the way that God is, is loved and pleased is through obedience to His commands. Paul Washer once said, the evidence of salvation is not sinless perfection, but a new relationship with God's commandments, a real inclination toward them, a genuine desire to do them, a growing practical application of them, and real contrition when our neglect of them becomes obvious. Unbelievers, however do not love God, nor do they aim to please Him. If they attempt to fulfill God's law, the royal law, at all, it is for other reasons, usually selfish ones. C, when believers fail to fulfill the royal law perfectly, they receive no condemnation from God because they are permanently justified through faith, Romans 5.1, and are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. They are called to fulfill the law, and yet when they fail at it, they are not condemned. And yet when unbelievers fail to obey the royal law, it simply adds to the condemnation they have already received for not believing in the name of the only Son of God, John 3, 18. Second, the royal law is fulfilled when we love God and others rightly. That's the second truth we learned here. How do we learn to love God and love others rightly? Well, we can re-examine the Decalogue, which is a great place to start. The first table, commandments 1 through 4, tell us how to love God. The second table, commandments 5 through 10, tell us how to love others. We can become a student, and we should become students of the Word of God, intent on learning how to love God and love others rightly, learning and memorizing the commands of God and then doing our best in the strength of the Spirit to follow those commands. I mean, after all, James told us how to love others rightly in verse 8. How? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do that, and you're fulfilling the law. Third, truth we can learn, James tied partiality to adultery and murder to communicate the seriousness of this sin and to illustrate how incompatible it is with faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, partiality has no place in the lives of God's people, no place in the church. We must take it seriously. We must cast it from our lives and keep it out of our church. Fourth, believers are under the law of liberty, under the gospel. This means that we are not judged according to the law or according to our transgressions of the law, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Under the law of liberty, under the gospel, what? We have received divine mercy rather than divine justice. Hallelujah! Spurgeon once said, The justice of God can bring no account against the believer, for he or she is completely forgiven. What a truth. This reality of being completely forgiven and given mercy, being under divine mercy and under divine grace, this reality should motivate the way we speak and act. And since we have been completely forgiven and are now under divine grace and mercy, we should speak and act graciously and mercifully toward others. And lastly, Fifth, an unwillingness to show mercy to others reveals something about us. It reveals that we have not yet experienced the mercy of God and are obviously not saved. Or it reveals that we have somehow hardened our hearts against others, and we have backslidden as believers. Either way, either way, either scenario, those who refuse to show mercy to others will not receive mercy from God, period. 
what James is saying here sounds a little bit like the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, if we are asking for God's forgiveness for our transgressions, but we refuse to forgive others who have transgressed against us, we're just bringing judgment upon ourselves. We're not going to get forgiveness from God. We have received mercy. We must extend mercy to others. If we don't do it, don't expect to get mercy from God. Don't expect to get, as we read today, new mercies from God. Every believer is a living example of how God's mercy triumphs over His judgment. We have broken the royal law. We deserve judgment. But God gave us mercy in Christ instead. As living examples of God's mercy, how can we live without being merciful toward others? How could we do that? What a grievous thing to even attempt to do. Believers, the recipients of God's divine mercy, and He even renews it on a daily basis for us, those who have received it, we should be the most merciful people on the face of the earth. Shouldn't we? Quick to forgive. Quick to forgive. Not showing partiality. We should be the most merciful people on the face of the earth because of the simple truth that we have received divine mercy. This is not a church and not an elder board that will tolerate mercilessness. If you don't want to be here anymore, just be that. We won't tolerate it. To me, it's one of the ugliest things that a Christian can do is to withhold mercy from another brother or sister or even an outsider. It must never be with us. Never.